Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we are thankful we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, that we may understand clearly what your word means, that we may see how it applies in our own thinking, and that uh, under the illumination of your word, that the errors in our own thought would be exposed, that we might exchange the human viewpoint opinions that we have for eternal divine viewpoint truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in 1 Kings chapter 18, but we'll go to some other passages before we're actually there this morning. Last time, I began to look at the events of that challenge that confrontation between Elijah and the priests of Baal in terms of how it is can be applied to us. It is a literal historical event that occurred in the uh, Old Testament. It occurred approximately uh, seven, uh, 800 or so B.C., but nevertheless, it is as real as if it occurred yesterday. It is as uh, empirical by virtue of the eyewitness testimony of these events as anything that we could observe in a science lab, that God actually intervenes in human history, that there are, uh, there are miraculous things that occur because God is distinct from his creation and he can, he interacts, guides, and rules over his creation and can indeed interfere with his creation and enter into creation. I pointed out last time that the one of the major trends that's occurred throughout history, ever since the beginning of the human race and the fall into sin, has been a battle between man's opinions and God's eternal truth, what I usually refer to as human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint, or paganism versus biblical truth, something along that order. The Bible is a uh, book of 66 separate books written over a period of a little over 2,000 years. 
from the writings of Moses in approximately 1400 B.C. Joe perhaps was written earlier, we're not sure, but from 1440 B.C. up to uh, the conclusion of the New Testament in approximately 95 uh, A.D., we have the writings of the Scripture written by over 40 different writers writing on some of the most controversial topics and issues that uh, have ever entered into uh, human thought. And yet these different writers coming from all manner of different walks of life, Peter was a fisherman, Moses was raised to uh, at least administer within Pharaoh's court, if not to assume the throne of Egypt himself. You have others such as Nehemiah, who was an administrator under a Persian king, Daniel, who was an administrator under a Persian king, David, who uh, began as a shepherd and rises to the throne of Israel, Solomon, who ruled uh, the, the kingdom of Israel at its greatest extent, Joshua, who was a military commander, uh, Amos, who was a herdsman and fig picker. Uh, these are the writers of Scripture, and yet whether they are from what we would call well-trained, educated backgrounds like the Apostle Paul or from some, uh, some obscure beginnings, they write with one voice. They write with one view of all of these different issues, the existence of God, eternal judgment, salvation, uh, human life, law, morality, ethics, all of the most controversial issues in life, yet they speak with one voice, and they do so because they are the voice, vo- they express the voice of God through the inspiration uh, uh, and the guidance of God the Holy Spirit. And so God has entered into history through human beings in many ways as he expresses his, his verbal uh, revelation. And his personal revelation was through another entry into human history, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. So we have the written word and the living word, and they agree completely. And this is presents a viewpoint about creation, about life, about ethics, values, law, politics, economics. All of these things are covered or touched on in Scripture in a way that shows remarkable unity, as close as many of us might agree on many of these issues, I think that if I were to randomly pick 40 people, or if I were to specifically pick 40 people out of this congregation that I knew and knew well enough to say, you will agree on almost everything, we could not come to as tight an agreement in writing uh, 66 different uh, pieces of literature as these writers have come. It is a testimony to the fact that this is a a unique uh, book in all of human writing because it is the very Word of God. But over against that, we have the problem of sin and humanity, which has asserted its own opinion, rejecting God from almost the get-go as the default orientation of the sin nature. The human race has sought to define itself on its own terms, apart from God. And this permeates every area of human intellection, not just as the Word of God through divine viewpoint touches on every area of human life, every area of human thought, so human viewpoint addresses every area of human life and every area of human thought. And if the foundation is wrong, then ultimately that is going to work itself out 
in many wrong directions in its permutations as it touches on everything from literature to law, uh, from politics to economics. These will be affected, but if the starting point is off-center, then to some degree the conclusions will also be off-center. Jesus used an analogy of a man building his house upon shifting sand. One man builds his house on a foundation of rock. And then when the storms of life come, it is the house built on an inadequate foundation that will collapse. And if we take that analogy and apply that to to an individual's life, we'll apply it two ways. First, to an individual's life. Secondly, to a culture. If an individual builds his life on shifting sands, what he's done is he's rejected the solid rock of biblical truth, and he has said, manufactured a fantasy in his own soul, saying, I think the sand is going to provide just as good a foundation as the rock. He is in self-delusion, self-deception. And he continues to live in that self-deception, and he builds a magnificent house, a magnificent dwelling on that shifting sand foundation. And what will eventually happen is that that house will come tumbling down like a, like a house of cards because the foundation is false. And no matter how intricate the rationalizations may be to justify building the house on those sands, it nevertheless, will collapse. On the other hand, those individuals who build their life, their thinking, their viewpoints on the solid rock of eternal truth as found in the Scriptures, then no matter what happens, they will have perfect stability in their thinking because it's based on truth, absolute truth, unshakable truth, what conforms to reality as God has defined it. Now, if you take that, those two individuals and you extrapolate that to groups of individuals, then what you end up with is two different cultures. You end up with one culture made up of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are totally committed to the fact that this house, this mansion that they have constructed on the shifting sands, that this mansion is is solid, that nothing can shake it, nothing can upset it. It is absolutely unshakable. They are living in a fantasy world. They have uh, built a castle in the sky, and they have moved in. They have gone through a, a psychotic break so that they have defined reality, and it's not reality because it is separate from God's Word. On the other hand, you take a group of people, hundreds of thousands, who build their lives and their thinking and their values and their politics and their economics and their relationships on the unshakable truth of God's word, then there is inevitably going to be a tension and a conflict and hostility between these two groups of people. Uh, recently, we have the, the term has been dubbed culture wars. We've, we're experiencing that in our nation. It's not new to us. It was experienced in the Roman Empire. It was experienced during the Middle Ages at the time of the Protestant Reformation. It was experienced in many different nations down through the ages because until Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, there will always be this conflict between those who are completely sold out to the 
uh, fantasy myth of human viewpoint and those that are sold out to the absolute unshakable truth of God's word. And in the Bible, we see this, this, this incredible confrontation between these two viewpoints take place at Mount Carmel between the one man, Elijah, who represents the truth of God's word and the 850 uh, prophets of Baal and the Asherah who have led the northern kingdom of Israel into this fantasy myth of the false religions, the paganism, the polytheism of the fertility religions that came out of Phoenicia and were brought into the northern kingdom of Israel by the, the queen Jezebel, who's married, uh, married to Ahab. And at the very foundation of these, this, this religion is basically a worship of the creature rather than the creator. And I drew out some of the implications last time because one thing we have to do is understand what the text says, what happened historically, what it meant historically. Once we understand that, then we're able to come over and draw parallels to a modern-type situation where we see application. Unfortunately, the Bible is not this simple, superficial book that some people think it is. And in order to uh, go from understanding the text to applying the text, you can't always squeeze that into 20-minute sermonettes. It takes time to think through these these issues. I want to summarize in eight points some of what I said last time as we build to our conclusion this morning. First of all, since the creation or since the entrance of sin into the human race, the default position of the sin nature is to worship the creation, the creature, rather than the creator. That is foundational. When I talk about the foundation of the, of the rock versus the foundation of the sand, ultimately you have to look at how a person views ultimate reality in the universe. Is it a personal, infinite God who stands totally distinct from his creation, or is it some lowercase God, or is it matter, impersonal matter, finite matter that somehow generates out of itself a living uh, organic life. So there's this conflict. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Men are characterized as truth suppressors, not tongue suppressors, truth suppressors. And what happens is that because this, as this passage goes on to, goes on to say, uh, what happens is that when uh, people start suppressing that truth, it wants to to leak leak out. It's it's trying to force all of this uh, uh, false thinking into a box which is already full. And so when you start pressing down and trying to push this. This, this inner witness of God into, into the corners and into the shadows, it has really uncomfortable ways of popping up at different times. And when, when God pops up in people's lives, when they've been working hard to suppress that truth, then it often presents a, a very hostile reaction, one that is 
is not equivalent to whatever the cause may be. We saw some examples of that when we watched the film Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, that Ben Stein did, when he would interview some um, scientists and ask them about uh, whether or not they could uh, they, they th- what they thought about the whole position of intelligent design and that, that somehow that there were some inner flaws in the Darwinistic view that everything came out of some sort of primordial ooze and just by virtue of pure chance alone uh, developed into uh, someone of the brilliance of, of uh, Albert Einstein all by chance. And they would just react. They would just go ballistic because somebody just might bring God into the picture. And we see this all the time. In fact, the ACLU, that bastion of, of defense of civil rights, what a perversion of language, is taking two teachers in Florida to court right now because they prayed in school. They didn't take students in prayer. They were praying together on school property. But we can't have that because, see, what that's done is that has pricked their conscience and they have managed to exclude God from their thinking. And things like this just bring it out in the open again. And we have to protect ourselves from that. You see the same kind of overreaction in uh, various other ethical debates that go on uh, in our nation. Romans 1.21 states that what they have done that it, excuse me, let me go back to one uh, one twenty one nineteen and twenty be, Paul says because what may be known about God is manifest in them, the most strident atheist that you've ever heard of knew at one time in their soul that God existed, and they've been trying to squelch that and cover it up and push it off into a corner and out of their life ever since. Uh, what may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them through, he goes on to say, through the nonverbal evidence given in his creation. Romans one twenty. for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." In other words, what Paul is saying is the nonverbal witness of the, of the universe gives us enough information about the existence of an intelligent, infinite, eternal creator that no one has an excuse for saying, I just didn't know. Every rock, every tree, every flower, every cell screams at every human being that God exists and yet they walk around with their fingers in their ears because they don't want to hear it. So Romans one twenty one then says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise. See, they're not stupid. They have IQs of 170, 180, 200, whatever. In many areas, they make valuable contributions to technology and understanding. And they may have double, triple PhDs from the most respected institutions in the world. But in God's eyes, they are fools. Because what they are doing is they are leading everybody they can influence into that house built on sand. 
In other words, what they've done is they've gone down to to the uh, west end of Galveston, and they have built a, a $20 million mansion out there right on the beach. And they say, we can all live here. It'll be just fine. No hurricane's going to come along and wipe us out. Life is good, and for a period of time, life will be good, and they will enjoy it. But then Hurricane Ike or some other hurricane is going to come along, and just going to blow that house away, and nothing will be left. And you remember the pictures we saw last year after I came in of, of beaches on Crystal Beach where everything's gone. Just, just Even the foundations were wiped out from these houses. And that's what will happen at some point to those who have followed them. And that's why God makes such an emphasis on this is because the tragic consequences in the lives of the people who follow the Pied Pipers of false religion and false philosophy and false science are going to just destroy themselves in that process. Now, they're responsible themselves for following, uh, making the choice to follow those false systems, but the leaders are also accountable. And so they are fools, God says, and they because they have exchanged or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man, for the creatures, the birds, the four-footed animals and creeping things. And as a result of their rejection, God gives them up to their own desires, to their own lusts, to their own, uh, to their own wills, because God's saying, you don't want to, you don't want to follow me, you don't want to submit to my authority, then I'm just going to give you enough rope to hang yourself, and eventually you'll see the self-destructedness of living in a dream castle in the sky. Second point, this rebellion has taken many ways, many forms in history, from the worship of the nature gods in the ancient world and fertility religions in the ancient world to modern deep environmentalism, as I pointed out uh, last time. It is this uh, deep environmentalism that we see today that is uh, influencing legislation, it is influencing business policy, it's influencing uh, the exploration for uh, petroleum, for oil, for energy. All of these things are influenced because legislatures and policymakers have, are, are living consistently with the uh, nature-worshipping philosophy that they have accepted. So we saw that human viewpoint religion sees God, in quotes, man and nature as part of the same continuum. In other words, God's just man blown up big. He's not a separate, distinct entity. Everybody can worship some kind of God, but he's not distinct from the creation like the God of the Bible is. And so they're able to sort of cover things up with a pseudo-God talk. Uh, God talk that makes people feel comfortable because they mention the Bible and they mention Jesus and they mention God. And so everybody says, oh, isn't it nice that they're, they're religious? They've sort of bought into a bland civil, uh, civil religion. And so we can, uh, you know, we can follow their leadership. Uh, but this is a, they are leading people into disaster. In contrast, divine viewpoint sees nature as God's distinct creation. And man is set over nature. So I put up this diagram last time to show where 
the human viewpoint system goes. It looks at all of existence as being defined by this triangle I put up here on the on the screen. And everything within existence is included in that triangle. Gods, God or gods, angelic or spirit beings, human beings, animals, vegetation, rocks, dirt, water, astronomical, geophysical environment. All of this is included within this scale of being. That idea goes all the way back to, uh, goes all the way back to Aristotle and it went sort of from the top down. In modern thought, in Darwinistic thought, it goes from the bottom, bottom up. Now, this view of reality really, really angers. I mean, th- this view of reality gets extremely angry when you bring up the biblical view of creation and man's role on creation. See, in this view, man is just part of the whole nature co- uh, continuum. And so uh, he's really no different from a rock or from a spotted owl or anything else, although in more extreme forms of deep ecology, man is really becomes the enemy of everything else uh, within nature. The biblical view is expressed in Genesis 1:28, when God created man, he said, he blessed them and said, to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Man is to subdue the That means that he is to investigate, evaluate, categorize, come to understand the properties of all of the resources that God has placed into creation. He's to understand the properties of all the different minerals, all of the different uh, gases, all of the different uh, organic or fossil fuels. He's to and then develop their use because God placed all of that there within creation for man. So man is separate from everything else. He is to come to dominate it through his understanding of creation. So man is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is also distinct from the rest of creation. Now, this really angers the human viewpoint environmentalist. And I used this quote last time from uh, 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, <coughs> whose was foreshadowed what came along with... Uh, in Nazi Germany and a lot of modern thought, he wrote, we, we owe the animals not mercy but justice. Justice, as if we, if we slaughter a steer for steaks, uh, that means that we have been unjust to that steer. So we can't do that. So we, we can't do anything that harms or hurts hurts creation. They have to be viewed as the same as us. Justice only applies from man to man, not toward animals. And yes, I am a dog lover. Trust me, when I see these things on TV about people who have abused animals, it just, it, it hurts. The biblical view is that you treat animals responsibly with uh, mercy, but that's different from justice. So he wrote, we owe the animals not mercy, that's the biblical position, but justice, that's the human viewpoint 
pagan position. And the debt often remains unpaid in Europe, the continent that is permeated with the stench of Judaism. That's that Latin phrase he used, feeder uh, Judaicus. It is obviously high time in Europe, the Jewish views on nature. What are the Jewish views on nature? Well, we just saw in Genesis 1.26. See, that's what they're dead sin against. The Jewish view on nature is the Old Testament view on nature. Uh, it's obviously high time in Europe that Jewish views on nature were brought to an end. The unconscionable treatment of the animal world, that means raising uh, chickens to produce eggs for you to eat. That means uh, slaughtering cattle in order to produce steaks for you to eat. All of that is unconscionable treatment of the animal world, must on account of its immorality. Now, where does he get this idea of morality? That's what I want to know. If he's rejected God, where does he get any idea of what is right and what is wrong? So he says this must all be expelled from Europe. Well, that pretty much foreshadowed things that developed in the 19th century. So fifth, I pointed out, thus biblically any study, study of nature that has a starting point other than special ex nihilo creation. Now, what is that? Special ex nihilo creation is the view that God, who stands completely distinct from creation, created everything in the universe out of nothing, that one second there was absolutely nothing, nothing physical, no dense blob of matter that exploded. There was just nothing. We can't even imagine that, just the nothing of nothingness, pure nothing. And out of pure nothing, God created everything, matter, energy, everything came out of just pure nothingness because of his ability to create that. So... Biblically, any study of nature that has a starting point other than special ex nihilo creation will have major problems when it starts extrapolating to what I'm calling macro-universals. Now, what, what I mean by this is that a scientist can study a flower, a botanist can study a flower or can study certain plants, and he can make all kinds of observations about the properties of that particular plant. And it's true with a lowercase t. But, and, and he may develop medicines and all kinds of different ointments and things that come out of the study of that particular plant. That's, that's a micro study. But what happens eventually is they start extrapolating to universal ethics and values and observations about the environment. And when they do that, then what happens is their, their worldview, their view of ultimate reality begins to shape and direct their conclusions. And when they come to certain conclusions, then those conclusions get foisted upon policymakers, upon business leaders, upon legislators. And when those are then enacted into, into law or into business policy, then it's forcing everybody else in that culture to live on the basis of a totally false view of reality, and it's basically forcing the rest of the culture to move into the house down on the west end of Galveston built on sand, whether they want to live there or not. And that is a direct attack and destruction of freedom, and it is an assault on uh, religious freedom and the, the First Amendment. In our nation, sixth point at the core. So, let's go back to that. Make sure I explain that. So, what happens is that if you're not starting with the truth of what God's word says, 
and you're starting on the false foundation, then when you start extrapolating to making universal statements related to climate control, related to fossil fuels, we only have enough to last for a few more decades, or uh, we may only um, uh, have uh, a few years. I think uh, Prince Charles said, uh, and others have said, that if we, we only have two or three months left to make radical legislative change on how we uh, treat the climate, or it'll be too late. We will pass a point of no return, and we will be doomed to destruction. See, point number six, at the very core of all human viewpoint thought is a denial of the sovereignty of God, a denial that he still controls and rules over his creation, and it also denies that God has accurately predicted how history will end. It's a complete rejection of the fact that that God has outlined how the human race will end, and it won't end any other way. It's not going to end through global meltdown from global warming. It's not going to end with a global freeze from a nuclear winter. It's not going to end in a nuclear holocaust. God is still in control. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, it's a reference to angel hierarchies, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and notice the last phrase, in him all things hold together. He's not going to let go. You know, there is not one thing that you can do with a can of aerosol spray that the Lord Jesus Christ can't handle. There is nothing you're going to, you know, you may mess up the air pretty bad, and there may be a lot of negative consequences from pollution. Uh, just go over to the former Soviet Union sometime when they, where, where they have no, no controls on any kind of emissions or anything like that, and, and it's pretty nasty. And the, the smog and the pollution and everything is, is just, just vile. But it's not going to destroy the human race and it's not going to destroy the planet because God said otherwise. So if we believe God, then we have to operate and live on the basis of what He has said. So the seventh point, when man operates on these false constructs or fantasy origin myths such as evolution, this begins to penetrate every area of thinking. The result of fantasy and living on the basis of fantasy is self-destruction. If you live on the basis of just a pure psychotic break, then you're going to destroy yourself, your thinking, your life, your family, everything else, because every decision you make is going to be false because you've misidentified reality. So point number eight, since the consequence of introducing this kind of error is so destructive to so many people. God had a special penalty for this in the nation Israel in the Old Testament. And that penalty was death. Because God understood what really happened to the victims. Now that's hard for us to understand in our world today because we no longer think about the long-term consequences to the victims as a result of faulty thinking. We think only in terms of short-term solutions and 
uh, somehow protecting the person who comes up with the idea or protecting a criminal if it applies to crime. But God, in, God instituted these penalties in the Mosaic Law, which we think is being so harsh, because he understood that if you let this cancer grow and have its influence and metastasize throughout the culture, then it is going to destroy the lives of all those who follow it, and it will destroy the culture. And so it has to be cut off radically at the very beginning. It has to be completely uh, excised from the culture. Now, the foundation for this is in the law of Moses. God didn't put this on other nations. There's a model there for us, but he doesn't did not give the law to anyone other than Israel, and they were to be a pattern uh, for others. In the Mosaic Law, the foundation, the prelude, the summary of all the principles in the law given to Moses, like our Constitution, is a preamble, which we refer to as the Ten Commandments. Now, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments relate to God. And these are given in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1, uh, 1 through 5. And we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, and the people heard it. He's not just speaking privately to Moses. This was uh, verbal, audible. If they had had an uh, MP3 recorder, they would have recorded it on the spot. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. And notice how he defines it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have given you empirical, verifiable evidence through the uh, ten plagues you just witnessed and through my ability to deliver you from bondage in Egypt that I am able to handle any and every problem that comes your way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's it, just me, no one else. Now, is God just being selfish? Is God just being, oh, uh, just just a party pooper here? You know, you just can't have any other gods because I just want to be the only one? Not at all. He said, because he recognizes that if you go to another god, even add other gods to him, then the long-term consequences of that are incredibly destructive. And so you just can't violate that principle. Once you do, you are on a serious downhill slide to incredible destruction. So first of all, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in earth, the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. See, that's, that's related back to the Romans 1 passage that we saw, that this is what man does. He substitutes the creature for the creator, and God says, for completely prohibits that, and don't make a physical idol of it. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That doesn't mean he's got the sin of jealousy or that he has a poor self-image. It emphasizes the fact that you just can't have any other God because once you do, it leads to horrible consequences. So it's me and me alone for good reason. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. In other words, there are consequences for going into false 
religions and false philosophies. Now, later on in the Mosaic Law, when Moses reiterated it and summarized it for the Israelites just before they went into the land, he laid out two particular laws related to what to do with false, those who promote false religion and false philosophies. The first passage is given in Deuteronomy 13. These Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 are your key passages for understanding uh, all of this. Deuteronomy 13, God says, If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. See, he's not saying, oh, it's some false thing. You've just been deceived by somebody who with sleight of hand said he healed somebody or he lengthened their leg or straightened their back or healed their arthritis or whatever. No, this is somebody who actually does something that from all observance, it's a genuine miracle. You know, genuine doesn't mean it comes from God. The Antichrist is going to have real miracles. Because, but the source isn't God. So this is somebody who comes along, and they say they have had a vision from God. They have they uh, substantiate that with some sort of miracle. And then verse 2, And the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods. See, there's the message. What did God say? Don't have any other gods before me. So a prophet who comes along and says, God said we're going to go after these gods, is contradicting specifically what God said. It's the message that's important, not the miracle that substantiates it. Just because somebody comes along and, and brings down fire from heaven doesn't mean that their message is validated by God. That what validates the message from God is the Word of God, what is in the 66 books of the Bible, that defines truth. And so what happens to this person who leads them into a false religion? Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you going to obey Exodus 20, or are you going to run off after this feel-good preacher who has performed some miracle that has uh, deceived you? Do you really love God so that the Word of God is more important to you than any experience, any event, any any charismatic human being that comes along with a promise? Verse 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But what happens to the false prophet? That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. Notice how God's defined here. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Seems kind of harsh. We would have a lot of executions going on if we were to apply this in our country today. We would probably solve the whole population problem. But see, 
God is looking at this in terms of the consequence in people's lives, the damaging, destructive results of listening to false teachers, of listening to uh, the architects of mansions built on the sand and following uh, their message is so destructive to people that that in order to stop it, the people who preach and prophesy that message should be put to death. God is showing love and protecting people by these penalties. He says the same thing a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18. See, God recognizes that once we compromise with false thinking, once you compromise with those myths that you tell yourself, those little lies that you tell yourself, those little rationalizations to justify sin, that you allow sin to plant itself in your soul and for those roots to go down deep and for it to lead to damaging consequences in your life and in your spiritual life. Deuteronomy 18 is a similar passage. Uh, if you turn there, we'll, I'll hit a few verses previous to that. Uh, Hebrew, in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 16, the discussion is what happens when you come into the land that the Lord your God is going to give you, the land of Canaan, and God is taking it from them because their idolatry and their rebellion has reached such an extremity that they are a per, they have, are such a perverse people that this threatens the rest of the human race. And so God has to remove them. They are going to be, have to be slaughtered man, woman, and infant because of the severity of their sin. They have to be surgically removed from the human race in order to protect the rest of the human race from the cancer of their carnality. So God said, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, uh, infant sacrifice, or practices witchcraft, or soothsayer, plays with a Ouija board, gets into astrology, interprets omens or a sorcerer. All those things are demonic. One who conjures spells, a medium of spiritists, one who calls up the dead, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God is not appointed such for you. Then when you get to verse 20, back up, 20, God says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of the other gods, that prophet shall die. Death penalty. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? What's our criterion for evaluating it? It's a pretty tough criterion. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. It's 100% verifiability. If they predict something to happen and it doesn't happen, even if they only miss it once out of 100 times, then it's the death penalty. They're a false prophet. It's 100% true because God is 100% true. Now, what happened on Mount Carmel? What happened on Mount Carmel is there is a challenge between two claims to truth. 
you have the Baal worshippers, the 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 philosophers of fertility religion and prosperity religion in the ancient world on one side, saying this is how we ought to understand reality. Reality really is pictured by Baal. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. And if you engage in all of the perversions of the fertility religions and all of the sexual orgies and everything else, that's how you'll entice God to bless you. And he is the storm god, the god of thunder. He's the one who provides rains for the crops. And Elijah comes along and says, no, God, the God Yahweh Elohim, who brought you out of Egypt, he's the one who provides rain. And just to show you, he won't let it rain until I say it rains. And so for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And now they're going to come to the great empirical test on top of Mount Carmel. And when they get up there, Elijah says, okay, you call upon Baal and have him send down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, and then I'll come up and I'll call upon Yahweh. And whoever who, who's, whoever's God answers the prayer, that's God. We're going to have a big test. And so they did that. And we saw the results that the fire, nothing happened when uh, the priests of Baal called upon um, called upon uh Baal all day to uh, bring down fire, nothing happened. But when Elijah uttered a simple prayer, the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, what was the result of this? Well, the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, he is God, Yahweh, he is God. And then there was the response of Elijah. Elijah then said, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Why did he do that? Was Elijah out of line? Not at all. Elijah, as a prophet, as the legal representative of God, calling the people to obedience to God, is forcing them to obey the Mosaic law and to execute these prophets because without their execution, the cancer is allowed to continue in the, in the nation of Israel. And so there are consequences clearly lined out by God that they are to be destroyed. Now, we know that Elijah waited until the time of the evening sacrifice to call upon God, he's got 850 people to, to execute. That's going to take some time. And uh, there are different, the Bible really doesn't say how he did that. There are some different views out there. There are some, there, there's the picture that I uh, had at the opening here. Let me go back to it. This is the uh, statue that has been uh, erected there on top of Mount Carmel, and you see Elijah standing there with the sword raised over his head, and he's decapitating one of the uh, false priests. I don't think that would happen. I don't know quite how long it takes to decapitate someone, but when you've got 850 decapitations, I think it takes more than you know an hour or so before it would be dark. Uh, there, the uh, Jewish tradition is that what Elijah did was that they marched the 850 prophets off of the cliffs. And so that 
took place fairly quickly. I'll put this picture back up here on the board through the little flame that occurs. But see those cliffs? It's about 1,200 feet foot cliffs. They just marched them all off the cliffs, and they fell down below, and the brook Keyshone runs along at the base of the uh, Carmel Ridge. And so that was the end of the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, it applies in a very significant way, and this is outlined in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. See, we have to recognize that in the church age, the basic enemy that we face is inside of us. It's our own sin nature. It is our own uh, bent and propensity to still rebel against God and to still be deceived by these false views of reality and these self-delusions as if we can live our life uh, apart from God. The Apostle Paul said, likewise, you also, you are to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, just as in the Old Testament, the physical representatives of false views were to be killed, the operation of the believer in the church age is to take the word of God in order to kill, to execute the false views of reality that still bounce around inside your soul. All of the lust patterns, all of the sinful thoughts, all of that is to be executed because if it is allowed to survive and you rationalize and justify it, then the long-term result is it is destructive to your spiritual life. So Paul says in Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. But we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We have been separated from it that by virtue of our position in Christ. Uh, we are distinct as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This power of the sin nature has been broken, and we are to begin to live at, over in control of it by virtue of the application of the Word of God and Bible doctrine to our soul under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Just as physically Elijah confronted the human viewpoint of the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, what we have to do in our souls is confront the human viewpoint that still uh, dominates and runs around in so many ways with the absolute truth of God's word so that we can execute that human viewpoint in the same way that Elijah did. And only once that occurs is God then going to be able to bless us in our life or could God bless Israel. What happens next is that after Elijah executes the, the false prophets, what happens next? He turns to Ahab and he says, you know, get in your chariot and go back to your home because rain is coming. God was not going to be able to bless them through the rain until they first dealt with the sin that was destroying the spiritual life in the nation. That's why we have confession of sin. As long as we continue in carnality, there can be no real blessing from God in our life. Only when we are growing spiritually and putting to death the deeds of the flesh in our own soul can we advance and can we really experience all of the spiritual blessings that God has for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word this morning and to be challenged by these truths that are there, that uh, this is not just some ancient book written by uh, someone two or 3,000 years ago, but that these truths are just as real for us today and just as important for us today as if these events occurred in the last week. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that this would be their opportunity to do so. Perhaps they're unsure or uncertain about eternal life. Perhaps they've never really heard what the Bible teaches about salvation. But the word is very clear that all that is needed is to believe that Jesus died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, and that by believing in him and him alone you have eternal life. Father, we pray that as we think about and reflect upon what we have studied uh, this morning in the past several weeks in the uh, confrontation on Mount Carmel, that God the Holy Spirit would make the application clear to each one of us in our own souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 